Hi, everyone. Welcome to Refine and Grow with Justin and Lindsay. My name is Lindsay Allen. And my name is Justin Ewan. And this is your podcast for proven strategies on navigating and managing work life. On today's episode, we have Elizabeth Moran. Dr. Moran is an experienced leader, consultant, and executive coach passionate about giving teams and organizations support to successfully navigate change. Partnering with business and HR leaders from Fortune 500 companies to technology startups, she has successfully supported large and small-scale transformation efforts through practical advice and actions that simplify change, leadership, and management. She is the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Forward, Leading Your Team Through Change, designed to make her practical approach accessible to all people and leaders globally. Prior to starting Elizabeth Moran Transformation, she was Vice President of Global Talent Development at ADP. She also held leadership team and talent development roles at Bloomberg, Lehman Brothers, Getty Images, and Time, Inc. She holds master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, a PCC-level coaching certification from the International Coaching Federation, and a certification as a neurotransformational coach. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. Great to be with you and Justin. So, Elizabeth, I want to start by asking what your book is about and the decision that you came to, the journey that you went on to write the book, why you think it's important for the audience. So having been a leader myself and being on the other side of a lot of great books, my challenge was always, what do I do with this? So part of the reason for writing the book was I really wanted a simple, practical guide for leaders that regardless of what was happening in their organization, whether they had a changed practice or changed support or not, I wanted them to have tools and resources that they could easily apply when they were leading through a change. As you all know, most of the changes in organizations are made by a smaller group of people and come down to different leaders to implement. And it is very hard to implement changes when you and your team don't initiate it. So it is really a practical guide with resources and tools that you know, leaders could use right away. So that was my real hope. The journey was an interesting one. Again, you know, having a corporate background, I loved the work that I did, but then I really wanted to start my own business. So you know, that's always an interesting journey, a lot of change. And I've been very excited that it's been well-received. And I think, as you all know, there's sort of no shortage of need in this area. So I am very excited to offer something that, again, I hope that they can use right away that's real, that's practical, that's authentic. I have conversation guides in there, especially around how do you respond to tough questions. So it's a bit of a short answer. We said I'm a bit of a change nerd here, as I like to say. So I love the topic. And what I also tried to do that I think is different is grounded in brain science. When people talk about neuroscience, that's the study of the nervous system and brain science is a piece of that. So I also wanted to meld the two, which I think most people I've talked to really like that part because they're like, oh, okay, good. I mean, it's me, but it's not just me. This is what happens. And I also think when leaders understand that, they begin to view resistance that they might be experiencing from their people differently. And that's the other thing of really trying to say the principles here are, one, you're already a change expert, having been through a lot of personal and professional change. The second is resistance is normal. 
not a problem unless you make it one. And the third is celebrating even the little things along the way is going to get you a lot more success. So that's what I'm really trying to offer up to be of service and support in the world. Yeah, building off of that kind of unique aspect that you bring with the brain research aspect of that, you know, one of the things we talked prior to the recording about how Justin and I have done change management as well. And one of the things I had heard is that the first reaction of someone who hears about a change coming is fear. That's the emotional reaction. Is that something that you've heard? Tell me a little about what you found about what's common in all of us when change is occurring. That's a great question. So I remember one of the mentors I was working with said to me one time, Elizabeth, when is change a good idea? And I did what I normally do, which is I started to overthink it. Oh, when we need innovation, when something isn't working. He's like, yeah, when it's your idea. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty true. And even that change is your idea, it can still be challenging, right? Depending on your experience with change, as we were talking earlier, the type of personality you have or preferences you have. And so absolutely what we know is that everything hits our emotional brain first. We're hardwired that way. This is a basic survival instinct. We're hypersensitive and vigilant to any changes in our environment that we instantly view as a threat. So when we understand that, hopefully in order to get success, it begins to change the way leaders lead. We were also talking about earlier, the good change leadership is just good leadership. And so how do you, with that in mind, and certainly if you're interested, I can get into some more of the neuroscience of those reactions, because there's a couple of them together that I think make it particularly challenging for leaders and employees through change. But I think once you know that, it begins to change how you approach your team. And when you understand some of these things, it can make a huge difference. Yeah, Elizabeth, I'd love you to go a little bit deeper on the neuropsychology side yeah. of the house, because I think that's something that's not touched on as much in our field. And it seems to me to be a differentiation in the conversation that you're having with your customers. Great. Yes, it, it actually is. And so in the book, I write about five concepts. And the reason I chose these five is they all kind of meld together. And as I started to learn about this over the years and I put it together with the change piece, there was some major light bulb moments for me about, oh, wow, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense now. So let's talk about a couple of things. So first for leaders and organizational cultures, the first aha moment for me was understanding this concept of the analytic network that we have different regions of our brain that work together and the empathetic network. Each person probably has a preference for one or the other. In general, the analytic network is needed to analyze data, make decisions, keep to timelines and deadlines. If you think about sort of the financial operations accounting side of any business or change. The other empathetic network enables leaders to basically step back and see patterns to see the big picture and also be more clued into the emotional body language, verbal cues of people. What's important about this also with change, but in general is this is where innovation happens in this network. The challenge for many people and organizations is that when one of those is active in us, it actively suppresses the other one. You're not in both at the same time. So that for me was like, ah, and also many organizations reward analytic network activities over right. 
empathetic network activities, right? So this is why those organizations who say, oh, we want innovation. It's like, well, what are you doing to create an environment where people are able to do that? So for instance, those organizations where they pull out their innovation businesses and put them in different buildings. I mean, ADP did that. They had an innovation lab, but that was actually really good neuroscience is how do you change the environment to make it more likely that people will actually think differently? So that's one piece. And that also was an aha moment about how somebody could be a really great change project manager, but not necessarily be clued in or understanding the people side of it. So if you think about a leader, there's a change coming down, they're busy, they have timelines, they need to move forward. Even myself, I would get lost in that. I'm like, wait, I told you about that. I'm focused on the goal and I'm completely then missing the clues and not attending to the clues that are telling me that people are struggling with this. Kind of building off of what you were mentioning, there's like the discipline of change management where you might have a team that's focused on a project. And then we were talking about there's the people aspect as well, separately. So can you talk a little bit more about differentiating between the two? And with that research and kind of aha moment about the analytic versus empathetic network, what are some of the tips that you give in your book for that? Right. Great question. So first, the project aspects of a change, if you think about from a project management perspective, that could include having a communication plan. That could include stakeholder management. That, at least for me in the process I engage with with clients, also includes let's think in advance, knowing that there is always lag indicators of whether your change is actually successful. But let's talk in advance about change adoption. So what would you be seeing and hearing or not seeing or not hearing that tells you you're on the right track? So what's the difference between sort of that normal dip and discomfort in going through a change versus derailing pain. So those are some of the project aspects. And again, getting together a project plan, figuring out who's responsible Mm -hmm. for what. Those are all elements of the project, what I call the project aspects of change. The people aspects really include, so what would be the content of those communication messages, for instance? So how do you communicate the change in the way, not only the what you say, but how you do it, that would make it more likely that someone would buy into your change? It could also include giving your leaders support, the tools, but giving them the understanding of the emotional side of managing people again. So how do they handle resistance? Can they view resistance as not as a problem, but can they view it as simply as concerns that haven't been addressed yet? How do you get them more comfortable to have conversations where emotions may come up? and understanding that. So it's both giving them the tools and also the understanding of what is your job as a change leader? What are our expectations of you? So I think most leaders feel pressure in this weird way to think that their job is to make people change. And as I like to say, you know, years of therapy, I'm still working on that one, but that's, you can't do that. So then it's, what can you do? Well, you can practice good communication, you can practice compassion and then clarity, which I get into the the book about what is that to help. So when I would work with teams internally and externally around change, I would specifically say somebody needs to wear the people hat at all times. And you can rotate that hat around the metaphorical or literal hat that says your job in this conversation is thinking if you're on the other end of this, 
what's going to concern you, what's going to excite you, what is it you need to be successful? Does this message sound like it's overly fun or does it sound authentic enough to get you interested? Mm -hmm. In every conversation, while you'll have some people who are going to be in the analytic network, it's always who is going to wear the people hat Mm -hmm. and give them full permission to say, I think that sounds like BS and I don't understand what you're talking about, or that's super jargony. And really it's like, if I'm sitting there like bottom line, it's always the first question people have is how is this gonna impact me? Which Lindsay goes back to why people react the way they do. It's always, uh uh-oh, what is gonna happen here? I wanted to ask, as I was just jotting down my thoughts, I would say there's a lot of snake oil salesmen in our line of work. There's a lot of hucksters put it kindly, a lot of theoreticians and not as many practitioners. And we already have inherent skepticism, although change is really starting to take hold, I've seen in the business world much more than it was 20 years ago when I first started. How do you deal with that emotional, empathetic component, make it real? How do you overcome that cynicism? I think that a lot of business leaders have that, oh, that's the soft, squishy, emotional stuff. That sounds really theory-based, not pragmatic, not practical. Like, How do you balance attuning to the empathetic, understanding that's where change really starts to happen in the psychology of the individual, while at the same time making it, dare I say, practical or implementable? So I hope most of the time I try to practice what it is that I preach, for lack of a better word. The first thing is if I ever get somebody's internal or even the external eye roll as I'm talking about this stuff, I pause and I simply say, what is it about that that you're hearing that seems fluffy or not practical. And I am genuinely curious. So when I was in graduate school, I designed a personal growth class for inmates in a jail. So that's where I really learned as someone said to me, which was great, Elizabeth, this is crap that you're talking about. Like this won't work. I'd be like, all right, so let's talk about, tell me why it is it won't work. Help me understand where you're coming from. So that's usually where I start. When I talk about the neuroscience piece, that for those people, who may be even more skeptical of the emotional side, that usually is something that many people resonate with is the second thing and they understand. The third thing is I have people trust their own experience. So a question that I ask them and I get them to respond is remember a time when you resisted a change, right? And so I would love to throw that out to the two of you. But when I ask that question, what then starts to happen is they use their own experience to understand, oh, that is real. I actually have experienced that. And typically to jump forward, and then again, I'd love to get your answer to the question, is when they understand that those emotions block and impede the rational brain, and that actually could prevent their change from moving forward, it might impede their goals, then they become actually more hooked into, wow, so what are the things I actually can do? And I think this is what I still found. It doesn't matter if you have 50 years of experience or one year, if you're a new leader, when it starts to become a difficult emotional conversation, especially if the person is frustrated or fearful or they're emotionally, they're crying, something like that makes people uncomfortable. And it's that discomfort, they want to shy away from that. It's usually that not wanting to deal with it, almost like it's fluffy. I found it's kind of a defensive reaction. If I call Mm. it fluffy, that means I don't have to deal with it. But when you figure out that, well, actually, you're going to have to deal with it. 
in a way, to me, it's like hiding the broccoli in the brownies. It's let's talk about the emotional component or the empathetic component. And I like the fact that you use the term empathetic versus emotional. Empathetic people will gravitate towards, but you wrap it up in neuroscience. You're actually making it a heck of a lot more palatable. We defer to science, right? Anything emotional, religious, whatever, we balk at that. We don't want to talk about that. We like to consider ourselves rational and logical, and we're not, but we want to defer to that. So if you say, hey, this is about the empathetic, and oh, by the way, here's a bunch of neuroscience that points to why this is important. Some of change management or change leadership for me is removing excuses. So I have kids ranging from the age of 12 to 22. Three of them are older and then I've got my young buck. And oftentimes I find, you know, 12 year olds are really good at finding all sorts of excuses. Logic just doesn't work with a 12 year old. And so what I often like to do is while I'm trying to appeal to things that drives and motivates him, I'm also trying to remove the reasons that he can default to as to why it won't happen. Oftentimes my communication or the enablement that we'll put in place around a major change initiative, yes, it's to help move them from resistance to acceptance or adoption, but it's also to say like, we've given you all of these opportunities and these very consumable packages, become aware and understand this. So don't tell me you don't know, or you haven't heard. There's something else happening. So let's talk about that. So that's where I like to kind of remove the excuses. I love that. One of the things I have found is I have a tool in, I think it's in chapter eight that talks about when resistance sort of continues and you want to take a deeper dive into resistance. And I think I have eight reasons there. You know, it disrupted somebody's idea of their career development and what was next for them. They may then work Mm -hmm. on a different team, the structures, they might be losing that. They might be losing a sense of their expertise, right? And so what I've also said is, look, the person just might be reacting to the change. Maybe there's no real good reason. It's just a change. And so in and of itself, how do you make that okay? So when you find somebody in your team who's struggling, simply saying to them, what is it that you're struggling with? Or what is it that's problematic that you see as problematic? So if I could come back to you all and ask the question about, remember a time when you resisted a change, I'm curious about getting some information from you. And then I think we'll continue, Justin, answering your question for the listeners. I was thinking about that as you guys were talking, that it all relates together. So on the surface, for me, it's this is going to take more effort. This is going to take more time. I already have more than enough on my plate. I am killing myself every day for you. How dare you (laughs) add more (laughs) to make it more stressful. If I look deeper, I would say what's being triggered in me is a loss of control. I very much enjoy being control and I'm a big planner. I'm structured, but it's been a bigger theme for me as well. Just like in life, you got to go with the flow a little bit more because you can't control everything. I think that's the trigger that sets off the emotional reaction of fear, for example. Yeah. I love a little bit of risk. I love risk. I love adventure. I love putting myself out there a little bit, whether it's work or play. For me, it comes down to skepticism or cynicism that leaders have actually thought about something thoroughly, that what they're driving into the organization is actually attached to a larger strategy. And what I mean by strategy is clear direction of where we're going over time, you know, three to five years, and that they've actually prioritized it well that they put in all the enabling components that are necessary for success, that it's not just 
new leader or like I like to say, this came from the military, kind of like the good idea fairy coming in to sprinkle their pixie dust over everything, that it's well considered, that they're thinking about all the components, that it's prioritized well, that there's all those enabling components. So I think I just have inherent skepticism. I usually, when I hear about a new initiative or a new idea, even if I agree with it at its core, I often think, well, they'll try to ram this in in three to four months. It'll likely fail. And then we'll just move on to the next thing. So yeah, I think that's where a lot of mine comes to, because I find if things aren't moving or if leaders aren't taking risk to advance the organization or we're losing out on that continuous improvement cycle, like where are we going next? The organization's probably getting really stagnant and stale and this is probably not a place I want to be. Interesting. So as you all both were listening to each other, do any of those seem like really stupid reasons for resisting a change? Do they not make sense? Well, Justin's do. (laughs) Mine about control, but I do think it relates to Justin in that if I don't have control, how do I know it's going to work? So I would even say, Lindsay, for you to say, we are all control freaks. Usually there's a sense if something will go wrong if I don't have a degree of control over it. I think that's very reasonable. When we don't feel like we have control based on our experience, we have felt at the mercy of other people. And then it you know, do we trust them? So in the book, I have a chapter on start with yourself. And these reasons that you're talking about make a lot of sense. So other things I hear is, you know, no one bothered to ask or include me in the decision, even though the change directly impacts me and my team, or we tried this type of change before and it didn't work. I don't understand why we're making this change. Literally, the change won't be good for me and my team. Maybe it's great for the organization, but it doesn't seem so good for me and my team. You know, even I like things the way they are. We're doing well. Why do we need to change it? And then the last thing I think, Lindsay, was also what you were talking about is there are many changes underway. I'm already feeling burned out. And so... When you're leading through change, going back to this idea of rational, I'd say emotions are data, but they just come in a different package. They're not on a spreadsheet necessarily, but they're still important data. And your job isn't to convince anybody of anything. Your job is to try to monitor and understand where your people are at over time, because you could have somebody who starts off being really excited about a change, but then it shifts. Something else happens, the floor drops out, and now they are going to have a problem with it. So at any given point in time, the leader through open dialogue is just understanding, hey, where are you at on that change adoption spectrum? For the most part, I trust you, even if initially you're like, look, I don't like this. It can be like, yeah, if I was in your shoes, I'm not sure I'd like it either. That's okay. You don't have to like it. And so the question is, is there anything we can do or talk about, or is there anything else that might be preventing you from liking it and not trying to overly spin it? Maybe it does in the short term mean some of my colleagues are going to leave or in the short run, more work is going to be piled on top of me. And maybe it's a situation, and we all know this, an organization, this is the way it is sometimes until our name is at the very top above the awning. This is organizational life. So leaders don't have to dance around this. And truly, if somebody says, I can't get on board with the change, look, I say resistance is not a problem. It's just not a permanent state. 
So how do you begin to have that conversation with people like, I'm okay if you're not comfortable with this, if it's going to take you some time. Lindsay, as we're talking about this change, when you think about what could go wrong if you don't have control, let's talk about that to see, listen, there may be something that you're absolutely right about that's great for me to know down the line so that we can plan for it, you know? And so most of the time, what all of this is about is how do leaders engage with that resistance, knowing that just because it's not your resistance doesn't mean there's not wisdom in it. And again, if somebody over time, you feel like you've had that conversation a number of Mm -hmm. times, you've provided information, you've tried to give them control, you've tried to redirect them, then at a certain point, it may be, look, we've had the conversation a number of times. I don't feel like at least what I'm seeing and hearing is still you're not on board with the change you check that out with your person. And if they're not, then it's then this probably isn't the right job or the right organization for you. It's okay if you don't want to buy into the change. That's okay, but then this isn't going to work for you here. You don't have to be mad about it. You can simply be clear. And I feel yeah. leaders either sometimes jump to that spot too soon before they've actually exhausted to help me understand what life is like in your shoes. I mean, how are you seeing or hearing the change? I have to tell you, Elizabeth, and I'm not buttering you up here, and Lindsay can attest to this. This is probably the freshest thoughts I've heard in a long time, especially this that you just elaborated on over the last five minutes. So definitely not a part of the discussion that I'm often hearing. I often tell folks leading change is not just about puppy dogs and ponytails and rainbows. We have to be honest with our people. It's like, hey, this might hurt. That's something the military does really well. They'll let you know when it's going to hurt. But I particularly appreciate, you've made a couple differentiations that I think are really important to call out. There's a difference between leading change and making people change. And I love the fact that you're taking the responsibility off of the leader to make people change. They still have to lead, but you can't force people to change. I love the idea that we can be okay with resistance, but that it's not a permanent state. Like at some point you got to get off the bus or on the bus. And I find a lot of leaders are very quick to go to that ultimatum. Hey, I don't think you're going to make it, but they're making that judgment 30 seconds into the change rather than six months into the change. The last point I think to me that's really important for our audience is that there can be wisdom in the resistance. I think I've been guilty of this. Oh, resistance is bad. Well, resistance might be speaking truth to power on a component and that resistor may not be wholly true, but they may have some partial truth there. I've often told people that work for me, a wise person accepts rebuke. It's the idea that I may not agree with your rebuke hundred percent, but there's probably something in there I need to listen to. Well, I think that can be turned around in the reverse to say, there's probably some wisdom in that resistance. They may look like a curmudgeon. They may sound like a curmudgeon. They may be getting in the way of your pep rally around this change. Probably something we need to listen to. There's a lot more in there that you spoke about that I really appreciate, but those three components really came out to me in Technicolor. Oh, I'm so glad. And one thing I think that sums that piece up is that if your mindset as a leader, and again, it's not that you'll always be here, you might be having a hard day, you might be feeling a ton of pressure. And this is where I feel so much compassion for leaders. We're often caught in the middle between the organizational agenda, right? And the people and you feel squeezed. So really it's compassion for yourself first. 
So two things. One, a mindset to have is that if you view resistance as a problem, that's probably going to increase your frustration. If you review resistance simply as concerns that have not yet been addressed, I believe, at least in my experience, it puts me into more curiosity. Maybe there is something there. And I think when we talk about more generally, it's hard for people to listen. First of all, our brain is designed to put defensive mechanisms up and to discount information that creates cognitive dissonance for us in our brain. I mean, we can just look in the world these days and think about the division, right? And I was really thinking about this, even with myself. Why sometimes do I not want to listen? And it really is, in a weird way, my ego is telling me if I listen, somehow I'm either losing my perspective or I'm agreeing with the other person. And again, if we know that, no, you can tell your ego, you know, don't worry, you still have your perspective. It's sitting right there. We're just going to sit it here because if most of my team I trust and most of the people are the right people in the seats, and even if they're not, right, I'm still going to make an allowance there. But how do I just take a moment and say, hey, I trust you. Help me understand how are you hearing the change or how are you seeing the change that's causing you to be concerned? And it's just a couple of questions because this is what I also like to say. Ironically, as a leader, you don't have to work as hard. Then. In an odd way, the minute you say, huh, let me just stop talking and listening, they'll tell you most of the time. And then when you do make an effort either verbally or to try to take an action, you're more likely to hit the mark. And again, as we like to say, change leadership, I do. And I even say, take the book and share it with your team and say, I'm on page yada, yada, and we're doing this together. But if we do it together here, right, then you tell me you're in the seat. You tell me then, as you know, it makes it more likely that the person that has some control and see, right, this is what we're trying to get to. And then you as a leader, you're not working so hard, which I'm all about. Well, Elizabeth, we're just about at the top of the hour. And I'll be honest with you, I could probably talk for another hour with you. This has been by far one of the most engaging discussions that we've had. Really appreciate your perspective. Like I said, there's not a lot that's fresh, I feel like, in the change world. I feel like we've been hawking the same wares for the last 20, 25 years. This is something that's really fresh and definitely something I'll share with my old practice. I'm in an internal role now driving our number one strategic transformation for our organization. And it's a monster change globally. In my old practice, I have nearly 50 practitioners in the U.S. who would really do well by your book. So if folks wanted to learn more about you, learn more about your book, engage with you, how would they contact you? Where would they find your content? This is your opportunity to let folks know who you are and where they can find your stuff. Great. Thank you. So the website is Elizabeth Moran Transformation. That kind of says it all about life right there. And then there are a list of the different types of services I offer. I do you know, leadership development in a variety of ways, including I have a technology solution that's a simulation. So it's a very scalable solution. I also consult you know, many consulting engagements with executive teams who want to initiate a change. And then I do leader development based on the work in the book. I also have articles, other articles and, and podcasts up there if people want more. And then the book is available through all the normal channels, Audible, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or IndieBound. So I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your people. Thank you. 
No, thank you. This is fantastic. So highly recommend. This is good stuff. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us. That's all for today's episode. To order your copy of the book, Refine and Grow, Lessons Learned on Navigating the Business World and Access Additional Resources, head out to our website at refineandgrow.com. And tune in next week for an all new episode. Thanks for listening.